reading from chapter Isaiah, uh, 20, chapter 22, verses 8 through 25. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the branches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in many ears, in my many ears. Surely this inquiry will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to this steward, to Shibna, who is over the household, and say to him, what have you to do here, and to whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself on the rock, behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently. O oh, you strong man, he will seize firm hold of you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall you be your glorious chariots you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Elakim, the son of Hekiah, and I will clothe him with your, <laughs> with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hands. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. The offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that the peg was fastened in a secure place will give away, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it shall be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. What is your hope? It's good to be with you this morning. And we continue here our Advent series where we're looking at the O antiphons, these titles of Christ that are taken from the prophetic writings, titles of Christ that, that often we come to be familiar with through the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And today we encounter one of the titles that is perhaps less familiar, the Key of David. And as, as we've just heard, it, it comes from a passage that might initially strike us as, as strange. But even here, we do find Christ, and we do find his gospel. So before we turn to this text, let us come before the Lord 
and prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your scripture. We thank you that it gives us your Son, Jesus Christ. I do pray that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions to this passage, Lord, and that you would apply the truths here, especially the truths of your gospel to our heads, to our hands, to our hearts. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, Isaiah here, he's prophesying to the people of Jerusalem, and he's, he's doing so in the midst of potential catastrophe, in the midst of the impending Assyrian invasion that actually threatens to destroy the kingdom of Judah. And yet, standing on the brink of destruction, we see the people here do absolutely everything but turn to the Lord, their God. In verses 8 through 11, we find the account of the people's efforts to prepare for the Assyrian invasion. And in particular, we see preparations to ensure access to a water supply in the event of a siege. But amidst this busyness and amidst this scrambling, the Lord declares to his people, you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Ensuring a healthy water supply is a good thing, but the people have only focused on the work that they can do. They've devoted their attention only to weapons, to wall breaches, and to water. They've not given any thought to God. They've not even looked to the Lord, the very one who planned all of this long ago. And the Lord, through Isaiah, tells them, in that day, the Lord, the God of hosts, called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. No, the, the people have not come to God in earnest prayer and petition and mourning. They don't seek the fatherly care of their tender God. They don't look to God, who is their one and only hope. Instead, there's a kind of joy and gladness in the city. Oxen are killed, sheep are slaughtered, wine is poured, and feasting begins. On the eve of potential destruction, the people decide to just have a party. And Isaiah captures this mentality well with the motto, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So let's step back and, and think about this mentality. Yes, the people realize that very likely they might die tomorrow. And so they decide to make this present life as full of as much enjoyment as they can, however fleeting that might be, even if it's just for one more day. They're face to face with the reality of death, and they have no answer, no solution, no real response to death. The only reaction that they can muster is to make this day as pleasurable as they can. Since things will end badly, let's just party now, come whatever may. And this is simply the ancient version of the modern creed, you only live once. This is a form of nihilism. 
In some way, shape, or form, nihilism speaks to the loss of meaning and the loss of purpose in the human life. And in regards to this passage, the philosopher Martin Heidegger, I think his description of nihilism best captures the mentality that we find here in the people of Judah. The philosopher Michael Allen Gillespie is, is helpful in unpacking Heidegger's view, and I'm, I'm gonna follow his description here. For Heidegger, there are experiences, quote, that call into question the meaning and nature of everything, including the being of the questioner himself. This is the, quote, experience of the abyss. And it's this that forces humans to desperately seek out answers that can make sense of the shattering world that we thought we knew. And so, in Gillespie's words, nihilism, in Heidegger's view, was the recognition that all of the answers to this question were inadequate. In this case, the people of Judah are collectively coming face to face with the reality of death. This is their experience of the abyss. In regular times, this reality of death, it, it need only be considered by those who are on the brink of death, those who might be suffering sickness or severe injuries or the hardships of age. However, for the rest of the population at that time, in regular times as it is with us, it's easy enough to ignore the specter of death. But now, the threat of war dispels this illusion in one fell swoop. While war is a grievous thing, this realization of our present mortal condition is not a bad thing. As C.S. Lewis writes, war makes death real to us, and that would have been regarded as one of its blessings by most of the great Christians of the past. We see unmistakably the sort of universe in which we had all along been living, and we must come to terms with it. Accepting Christ's return, we will die. This is the inevitable tragedy of human life in a fallen world, and it's no good fooling ourselves otherwise. On some tomorrow, we will perish. But here's the crux of the issue. Again, Nihilism, in Heidegger's view, was the recognition that all of the answers to this question were inadequate. The question is whether we have an answer for death. If not, then we, by Heidegger's lights, we have become nihilists. And here, the people of Judah, they have no answer for death. All that they can say is, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The people of Judah have given themselves to feasting, to enjoying the pleasures of this present life as much as they can before this life is taken away from them. And this is a form of nihilism. The philosopher Charles, sorry, the philosopher Charles Taylor, he tells us that if our life exists only in the imminent frame, only within the natural world that we can experience with the senses, only within the confines of materialism. He tells us if this is the world that we inhabit, then death undermines meaning. If this is the world we inhabit, then Taylor tells us death is simply the negation, the ultimate negation of flourishing. 
All that you have will be lost. Eventually you will be forgotten. Nothing of your life will endure. And one day the sun will expand and destroy the earth, making all that ever happened on this pale blue dot completely irrelevant. And how does this undermine meaning? Well, this means regardless of however you might live, everyone faces exactly the same fate. Non-existence, simply ceasing to be. Once death hit, it doesn't matter how you live. And so death undermines any enduring meaning and any enduring significance that our lives might have. And to be sure, the people of Judah, they do have a notion of the afterlife, but here it has ceased to become a functional reality in their life. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In this case, we have no answer to death. It's simply the negation of any meaning that our life might seem to have. Let us give ourselves to feasting and pleasure and any enjoyment we might find in the moment. Let us indulge every urge. While you work, while you can work, give yourself wholly to professional success. While you can attract people, give yourself to as many romantic escapades as you can. While you have money, spend it lavishly. While you have your health, travel as much as you can. While you have resources, make your life as comfortable as you can. Again, you only live once. This is the nihilistic response. It gives no answer to death, but simply tries to make the best of life before the inevitable and certain destruction of death. But there can be no true joy and gladness here. St. Augustine tells us that one requirement for happiness, one requirement among others, is that what makes us happy must not be able to be lost. Otherwise, fear of its loss will always and ever undermine our contentment. And here in this present life, these are all good things, but we know that one day they will all be lost. We're trying to quench our thirst by drinking from a cup with a huge hole in the bottom. We lap up a few drinks while most of the water drains out and escapes our mouth. But there's something more here because we do see here an additional response to the reality of death. In verses 15 through 25, we're introduced to two figures, Shivna and Eliakim. Again, the larger backdrop of this passage is the impending Assyrian attack. And we actually find an account of this in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. And in the beginning of chapter 36, we're told that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, after taking several fortified cities in Judah, he sends a delegation to Jerusalem. And in response to meet this envoy, two of the officials that are sent out from Jerusalem are Shebna and Eliakim. And what do we find out about these two figures in today's passage? Well, Shebna is presented in quite negative terms. He cares only for his own glory and success, even while his people are on the brink of destruction. Rather than concerning himself with the life of his people, he's more concerned with how he will be remembered after death, 
Amidst the turmoil of this situation, Shebna is focused upon carving out his tomb, upon making himself a monument so he will be remembered. We're told that the Lord will cast him down from his position, but even if the Lord had not done this, this would make Shebna's behavior no more virtuous. It would not make it any better. As one commentator writes, Shebna found his identity as a person in the this worldly benefits of his office, and he set about securing his place in history by his own efforts. He went in for ostentatious display, splendid chariots, and he intended to perpetuate his memory in a grandiose tomb. Yes, Shebna knows that he will die. And like the rest of the people of Judah, he's trying to make this present life as pleasurable as he can. But instead of, sorry, instead of feasting on oxen and sheep, he's feasting on his own people. We get the impression that he is anything but, uh, anything but honest in the performance of his duties. He's acquired resources to purchase the finest of tombs, to acquire the finest of chariots. He's done this at the expense of the very people that he's meant to serve. And so Shebna, he adds another element to the mantra, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. For him, we should not only eat and drink, but we should be remembered and praised after we die. And this is not a unique notion. We see this, for instance, in the ancient Greek ethics with the notion of kleos. Classicist and, and scholar Elizabeth Van Diver, she says that kleos is the only form of human immortality that we find in Homeric Greece, in the epic poems of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Kleos is what all of the warriors in those stories are seeking in fighting these battles. Van Diver explains what kleos is often translated it's often translated as glory or fame or reputation. She says that actually, most literally, it means what people say about you. And it especially concerns what people say about you after you die. The idea is that if you can remain in the praises of the people long after you pass because of your exploits in battle, then you attain a kind of human immortality. Death will not have conquered you fully. And in building this fine tomb, even while he's alive, this is exactly what Shebna seeks. Shebna is seeking Kleos. He too is seeking immortal glory and fame for himself. And we too actually feel this acutely in our own modern moment, this need for Kleos. I recently listened to an interview with, with Alan Noble, a professor of, of literature, and he said that more and more of his college students are terrified of graduating and moving on to the next step. They've been told by our culture that it's up to them to make their lives a great story, one that will impact generation after generation to come, a life that we might say has a kleos that will endure long after they pass. And this might actually seem like a great calling, like an exhilarating opportunity, but as Noble points out, this is exhausting. 
It's a burden. It's a crushing weight. It's a view of life that will never let you rest content with what you have and who you are. For instance, Noble recalled a conversation in which he suggested to one student who was struggling with these issues that she simply go back to her hometown, take a standard nine to five job and invest deeply in her local church and community. And in response, the, students, uh, the student replied, wait, I can actually do that? The problem is that 22 years of propaganda had made the student think that her life had to be a grand narrative worthy of the movies. And because of this propaganda, this student and all of us as well, take responsibilities upon ourselves that we were never meant to bear. If what we need is kleos, a glory that will be spoken of by people long after we're gone, then only a few persons could ever have this kind of immortality. The vast majority of people, people who may lead very virtuous lives, they'll never be remembered by later generations even though they faithfully carried out their responsibilities day in and day out. If Kleos is our only hope for beating death, then we must carry a crushing burden. We have to carry the weight of making our life the greatest of stories. And this actually pushes us away from what the world needs most. Christians committed to quiet and faithful lives of service, in their family, in their church, in their community. Christians who, though seemingly small in the sight of humans, are a great delight in the sight of God. Even more, if we see Kleos, we can't help but be like Shebna. We will step on others in order to make ourselves great. We will do anything, however unethical, to get ahead. We'll work hard to be remembered by making others forgotten. We, like Shebna, will feast upon the very people that we are meant to serve. And even if we do attain a kleos that endures for a thousand generations, which some people actually do, does this really beat death? Can you truly live in the mere praise of others? Can these words of remembrance do any good if your own ears are decaying in the tomb? I don't believe so. And so even here we come against the hard reality of death. Kleos is not a satisfactory answer to death. But what of this other person we meet in the passage, this other official, Eliakim? Well, in contrast, Eliakim actually carries out his office well. God calls him to this post and gives him authority. Isaiah even tells us that he will be a father to the people of Judah. In fact, God places upon his shoulders the key of David. And this symbolizes all the authority and the rule of the Davidic kings who sat upon the throne of David in Jerusalem. While the kingdom is in the midst of catastrophe, Eliakim is compared to a peg in a secure place. He will help Judah stay firm. However, something happens. Isaiah finishes his prophecy about Eliakim with the following words. 
And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. What are we to make of this? Why will this peg that seems so firm, why will it suddenly give way? Isn't Eliakim a good leader? Well, yes, the passage tells us that he is. But the problem is that the people have mistaken him for their ultimate leader. They put upon his shoulders a weight and a confidence and a trust that no mere human can bear. As one commentator writes about Eliakim, the reliable office holder attracts to himself the respect and confidence of people. But should this become a reliance on a human person, replacing reliance on the Lord, the end is calamity. In a world where we are vulnerable, in a world full of death, in a world full of things that we simply can't control, in a world where we know only too well the fear and anxieties in our own heart, in the fallen world where we live, we often seek just such a leader, some personality, some hero who can make everything better. We want some mere human to step in and fix all the problems as we define them. If we ourselves can't have a life of chaos, then let's put all of our trust in someone who can. We will still die, but at least we can make things here as much like we want them to be before we do. And American politics and the hero worship therein is only one recent example of this. However, no human being, not even the fatherly Eliakim, can carry such a weight. And so while Isaiah does not give us details, somehow things fall apart here. Somehow Eliakim is crushed under their unrealistic expectations. So is this the end of the story? Can we really do any better than let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die? Is there really any hope? Well, yes, because this is not the last time that we confront the key of David in Scripture. We find in Revelation 3 Christ saying this about himself, that he is the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. While Eliakim was given the key of David, we find here that Christ is the one who possesses the key in virtue of who he is. Even more, we find that in Christ's hands, these keys are much more than the ability to make binding political decisions. These are the very keys of life and death. That is, we can't understand the mention of the keys in Revelation 3, without relating it to what Christ says about himself in Revelation 1. Christ says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. We see that these keys are associated with Christ as the living one, the one who overcame death. And the pairing of the key imagery here in Revelation 1 and Revelation 3, it tells us that the keys of death in Hades, they're directly related to the key of David. Biblical scholar G.K. Beale explains that the keys of death in Hades symbolize Christ's authority over death and hell. 
whereas the key of David, it symbolizes the authority, his authority, over salvation. He's both the ultimate judge and the only savior. Christ is the one who opens and locks both heaven and hell. He is the one who determines the shape of our life after death. But how does this connect to a self-description as the living one, as the one who died and is now alive forevermore? Well, let's go back to the question of death. Remember, to avoid nihilism, we must have an answer for death. And Christ gives us the answer that we need, the one answer that is alone satisfactory. Scripture tells us that death is a punishment for sin. It's a punishment for the sin of Adam and Eve that all of us bear. And death, it's a fitting punishment because it's the natural consequence of turning away from God. To turn away from God is to turn away from the very source of life, and so it is to turn toward nothingness and death. Death just is the natural consequence of that most unnatural action, sin. And so now we experience the natural consequence and the divine punishment of death. Yet death, like the Assyrian siege, it's meant to foster the right response in us. Remember, God chastises the people for the way they dismissed him amidst the threat of Assyria. He says, you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. God does save the people of Judah miraculously from the Assyrian army, even despite their response. But still, all of them one day will die. It may not be tomorrow, but it will be one day soon, and likely sooner than they think. And death, death is a much, much worse enemy than Assyria. And it certainly will overtake them soon. And what God says of Assyria is true of death. Like the Assyrian invasion, death is a punishment. It's a curse handed down by God, meant to direct us to God. And it, like the Assyrian threat, is meant to bring us to God in, war sorry, in mourning and weeping. Paul tells us this in Romans 8. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This speaks of God's cursing creation in response to the sin of Adam and Eve. The ground is cursed with thorns and thistles, and our very bodies bear the curse of death. But all of this was done by God, in hope, in hope for the purpose of overcoming futility. The futility is meant to lead to the end of futility. Death is meant to lead to the end of death. This bondage is meant to lead us to the freedom of glory that God always intended both for humanity and creation. And how is this so? Well, look again at the response that God desired from the people in response to Assyria. And that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. 
What these are are the actions of repentance. These are the actions of coming before God and confessing that we have not loved and honored him as we should. These are the very actions that we are to perform in the face of death. Not the nihilistic eating and drinking of the people of Judah. And this, this brings us back to Christ. Because it's only by repentance that we turn back to God. And it is this repentance that brings us to Christ. If you are cold, turn back to the fire. If you're hungry, turn back to food. If you can't see, turn back to the light. And if you are dying, turn back to God, who is the very source of life. The futility of cold is meant to direct you to the fire. The futility of hunger is meant to direct you to, to food. The futility of darkness is meant to direct you to light. The futility of death is meant to direct you to God. But it is by repentance that we come back to God, that we turn away from death into life. And this is because to turn to God, we must turn to Christ. Again, as Christ tells us, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Christ is the first and the last. He is before and after all things. He is eternal. He is outside of time. He is God. But he became human, because here we find he died. But then he was raised and now is alive forevermore. Christ is God become human to take the punishment of death upon himself. And so to overcome the curse and the wrath and the futility of death. And because Christ overcame death, Christ has the keys of David. While Eliakim had the keys to unlock the doors of the earthly Jerusalem, Christ holds the keys to unlock the doors of what scripture calls the new Jerusalem, the restored and resurrected life of true joy and gladness. The city whose mantra is, let us eat and drink the wedding feast of the lamb, for death is no more. And how is it that we enter in to this new Jerusalem? By doing to Christ what the people of Judah wrongly did, to Eliakim, they placed a weight upon his shoulders that he could not bear. They hailed him as their great deliverer, as the one who could save them and their city. But again, this crushed Eliakim. He was a good ruler, but no mere human can bear this weight. Christ, however, the one who is the key of David, the one who unlocks the new Jerusalem. He came precisely to bear this weight. And he, like Eliakim, will be crushed, but not by the expectations of the people, but by the divine wrath against sin. Christ was crushed upon the cross, bearing the punishment that we deserve. Christ is the judge who took our judgment upon himself. But again, he was raised and he lives forevermore. 
Even more, he unlocks for us the new Jerusalem if only we place our faith in him. If we believe that he lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died, if we trust him with the weight of our whole existence, if we put upon him that burden that crushed Eliakim, if we do this, Christ bears it lovingly and welcomes us into life. If we have faith in him, Christ unlocks our way into the new Jerusalem. If we have faith in him, this is absolutely what we are guaranteed. But again, this is a matter of repentance, of weeping, of lament. We must, conf we must confess our sin. We must acknowledge that Christ suffered what we alone deserve. But that's not all. Because this is also a matter of true joy and gladness, not the fake joy and gladness of nihilistic feasting. No, true joy, true gladness. Because not only are we promised perfect communion with God and neighbor and freedom from death and corruption and sadness in the new Jerusalem, but we also see the depth of God's love for us. Look at the cross and see that God in Christ gave his very life for us. The futility of death rightly leads us to overcoming death. And that's in Christ Jesus. But if we choose to respond otherwise, as the Lord said to the people of Judah, he will say to us, you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. And so during this season of Advent, during this time of waiting, ask yourself, is your life characterized by the motto, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die? Do you embody the nihilistic mantra of, you only live once? Are you living without any real answer to death? And the irony is that if this present life is all that we have, then every bit of its meaning will be swallowed up in death. If this is all that we have, then this present moment does not have more significance, but ultimately it has no significance. And this is fitting since a literal Latin translation of nihilism is nothingism. However, our story does continue after death. And if you are in Christ, if Christ has unlocked the new Jerusalem for you, you will absolutely miss out on nothing. But if this present life is all that you have, you absolutely will. And this is the difference between the patient, grateful, quiet, and service-oriented shape of the Christian life versus the nihilistic, restless, never-satisfied, and ceaselessly self Focus shape of life that we are continually tempted to. Because my dear Christian, all good things in time, even and especially God himself. Do your present realities, your present priorities, do they reflect this? How about your schedules, your work-life balance, your relationships, your giving? your hospitality. We must think hard about death, but we must think harder still about Christ's answer to it in his overcoming 
others. Yes, we continue to lament death. It's a curse. It's not a good thing. But we know that when we face it rightly, it pushes us to Christ. It pushes us to life. As the poet George Herbert has said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. And so let us eat our pride and let us drink whatever cup God may give us in this life. For tomorrow or someday very soon, we will be with Christ. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have conquered death in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we have an answer, we have a hope, and the key of David, who unlocks this beautiful, restored creation, a place of perfect fellowship with you and perfect fellowship with man. Give us hearts that hope and long and rest in this, Father God.